Hi, I am Daniel. Maybe not everyone knows this about me. Joseph Ricardo. And you are listening to myself and the lovely Tom Clarkson on Beyond the Grid. Hi everyone, Tom Clarkson here, welcoming you once more to Beyond the Grid, presented by the new Bose noise-cancelling headphone 700. Now the 2019 season may be over, but we're still going strong. In fact, for the penultimate show of the year of your favourite podcast, we've got a guest that a lot of you have been asking for since day one. First and foremost, he's one of the fastest drivers in Formula One. He's won seven races and taken three poles, and he's widely regarded as one of the best overtakers in the business. But he's also the guy with the big smile and the naughty sense of humour. I'm talking, of course, about Daniel Ricciardo. Always one of the most popular drivers on the grid, Daniel has become infamous for his quick one-liners. It's rare that a Grand Prix weekend passes by without a video of him saying something hilarious going viral on social media. But it's also very rare for him to sit down for more than an hour to talk about everything from the here and now with Renault, to his reasons for leaving Red Bull last year and his relationship with Max Verstappen, to what makes him tick away from the track. Well, that's exactly what he did over the Abu Dhabi Grand Prix weekend. While he ate room service in his hotel, I sat on the other side of the table and nicked some of his chips. But we also chatted at length, although it never feels like a long time with Dan. As ever, he was in good form, and I hope you enjoy our conversation. There's some absolute gold in here, I promise. Daniel, welcome to the show. It's lovely to have you on. Now, it's exactly 10 years since you first tested a Formula One car. Can you remember that tester, oh, Hooray? Yeah. Yeah, you're right. It is 10 years. Gee. Um, yeah, I do remember. I remember driving out of the garage the very first time. And I remember dad being there. And he was, I think he was probably more stoked and excited than I was. Um, I remember it was, it was yeah, this, it was a beautiful day. It was winter, but it was beautiful. The sun was up. And I remember driving under, out of the garage and under like the gantry or whatever as you, as you pull out of the pit lane. And I was like, wow, I'm really, really doing it. This is it. What is the overriding emotion when you're, you're a young guy? It's your first chance. I mean, is it, are you a little bit frightened or are you just excited? Um, both, definitely both. I think excited more than anything, but yeah, slightly frightened too because... You're like, oh, well, I'm, I'm in the spotlight now. The whole team is here for me today. So part of you is like, I want to go fast, but part of you is like, don't mess up. Well, you nailed it. <laughs> Eventually, yeah. yeah. Yeah, I had a little spin, I think, on, on my first or second lap. But, uh, but then, yeah, eventually got, uh, got some good times out of it. Do you still get that same excitement when you get strapped in now? How does it change? So I guess the, the short answer is yes, but more so for the competition. Like if I was getting strapped up to do a end of season test in Jerez now, 10 years later, you know, to pound around doing a hundred laps by myself, I would, would, it'd feel like work. It wouldn't feel like excitement, so to speak. So I think, yeah, driving around in circles alone without really a target is less exciting now because you just become a little bit more immune to it, I guess, and, and a bit more numb. But, uh, but strapping in the car, you know, for qualifying and, and for, for race day Sunday, yeah, that's, that's still more, more than anything. Now, it's interesting that you say your dad, Joe, was excited for you that day 10 years ago because 
I don't know how many people know this, but he came to England in 1978 to try and be a racing driver, didn't he? Yeah. I think it was it Jim Russell and stuff. Yeah, yeah, and, and, yeah. I mean, and it never quite happened for him. Do you ever talk about those times and his sort of, did he learn from his failings and help point you in the right direction? We, we talk, I mean, he's told me a bit about it for sure. And um, I don't know if he necessarily did anything wrong, but I don't think he, I think he kind of just came or went to England on a bit of a hope and a dream. And I think he was just excited to be part of racing, you know, and obviously he was trying to be a driver, but he was just happy to be around race cars and work on a race team and, and all that. Um, was he good? I don't was think, he any good? I would say yes. Um, how good I, I'll probably never know. But uh, I know like growing up watching him in a car, like, you know, manual gearbox doing heel and toe and all that. Um, yeah, he had, he had that touch. So he was definitely very capable um, of driving a race car, but uh, was he good enough if he had, you know, the financial backing or whatever to make it? I'll, I guess I'll never know. But yeah, I, I, I haven't really asked him really what his real, I guess, intention was going to England. You know, was it just to learn and, and, and be surrounded by kind of a, a motorsport community or was it actually with the intention of, did he really believe he could make F1 or something? I, I guess I haven't really put it to him like that. And it's, it's him that set you on your journey, I suppose, was it? Yeah. Yeah. I mean, like indirectly, I guess, you know, he, he never bought me a go-kart and said, I want you to drive this or he never forced me to go to the racetrack. But I think, yeah, me being surrounded by him and his love for the sport that then, got passed down to me and I was, uh, I was in love with it from a young age. And then, yeah, funnily enough, he, he, if, if anything, he turned me away from it. He tried to not let me pursue it because I think he also knew there's a few reasons it's, it's, yeah, it's dangerous and it's a bit, bit unnerving for unnerving. Is that the word for mum? Yeah. yeah. Um, nerve wracking. I've, I've, seen, I've, <laughs> I've seen your mum watch a race actually. Oh. She's, there's a lot of nervous energy there. Yeah, I feel. Uh, yeah, yeah. I, I, I'll pay her back one day somehow. Just buy her like a three month holiday in the Maldives or something, um, so she can relax. But, uh, but yeah, and, and the other reason as well why he turned me away a bit was he knew no one had ever done it from Perth, you know, and let alone there was only X amount of Australian drivers that had made it. So. He, I think he just knew the likelihood, you know, the strike rate was very, very low and the likelihood of him investing his time and his money into me and, and kind of with, leaving me with a broken heart was, um, I think he had a fear of that. So for people listening who have never been to Perth, how, how much of a, I don't know what the right word is to describe, how would you describe Perth? How is it different to Sydney and Melbourne and, the, you know, the, the big... Aussie city? Uh, I don't know. Why, no, why is it so unusual for a guy from Perth? Well, we're very isolated. I think we're one of the most isolated like cities in the world. Um, we're all the way, so other side of Australia. Um, and then well, there's a lot of water, you know, to the other side of us, you know, that there's not much around, you know. So yeah, we've, we've got over a million people and, you know, there is stuff happening in the city, but it's, I think the isolation probably says a lot and we're quite a slow paced city, I guess. And, you know, we always would, as, as kids would joke, you know, we're, we're five years behind Melbourne or Sydney and then Melbourne or Sydney's five years behind LA or New York, you know? So we, we were really, um, yeah, I just not, I guess we were just whatever, like not, not much really, nothing was really on the, like the front foot in, in Perth, I guess, or that was the perception. And 
then so why should I be special in, in a small town and why should I be able to go to Europe and be better than these other guys that are surrounded by it? And, and motorsport wasn't big, you know. Well, you had, what is it, Barbagello? Is that the same? Barbagello Raceway. Yep. Yeah. How close is that to home? It's, it's pretty close. Yeah, 30 minutes. Yeah. So lots of time pounding around Barbagello when you were younger or is that where you first drove a racing car? So a racing car, yes, and a go-kart was just down the road. So it's kind of, it's not part of the same complex, but it's on the same road. Um, so it's it, it's in the same area. And uh, yeah, Wanneroo go-kart track. And uh, yeah, it was Tiger Kart Club. That was my my kart club. That was the local. And that's where I drove a go-kart the first time. And then uh, a Formula Ford was, yeah, Barbagello Raceway. So how did you convince dad then that you, you wanted to do this? And I know... Mm-hmm. The odds are a million to one, but we're going to have a crack. Um, I, I, I probably didn't overthink it either. You know, for me, all I needed to convince him was to buy me a go-kart because I had a lot of fun driving the go-kart. And yes, I, I loved watching Formula One and I and I had heroes and that, but I wasn't, you know, at nine years old, I wasn't like, yeah, dad, I'm going to make it. Like, we're going to do this. It was more just, can you please buy me a go-kart because I like driving fast and not really anyone else at school is doing it and, and I want to kind of be... A little bit unique and, and stand out as an individual so yeah and that's quite interesting in itself though that you wanted to stand out from your peers i guess yeah what was everyone else doing <laughs> i was what, a bit of an attention seeker <laughs> <laughs> what school trips to the whacker for the cricket or, or what, i don't know what, what did other people get up to when you were doing your driving um they were i mean yeah like obviously australia is a very big sporting nation so you know a lot of kids were playing Auss- aussie rules football um cricket rugby uh, I mean, tennis, I, I played a bit of tennis as well, but uh, soccer, everything. Swimming was quite big as well, surfing. Uh, I was scared of sharks though, so that didn't really work out for fe- me. How did that fear of sharks come about? Yeah, I've heard you say that before. <laughs> I mean, uh- I, blame my, I blame my parents for that one because they're not like ocean people, you know? And uh, so dad is not a confident swimmer. Uh, and then mum, mum's not an animal person. So she's kind of scared of pretty much every animal that exists. So she wasn't really getting in the ocean for everything that's in the ocean. So I guess as kids, you know, we lived five minutes from the ocean, but we never really spent much time in the ocean because I guess it, our parents weren't really swimming or surfing much. So we naturally just didn't didn't do much of it. And I've heard a story, tell me if this is true or not, that dad used to shout at you on a go-kart about braking and and there was also an argument coming home from a race about overtaking and all sorts. Yeah, of... yeah. So I mean, he he was. How would you describe your relationship with your dad? <laughs> it actually no, it wasn't it wasn't as bad as maybe that sounded. So he he wasn't like he wasn't one of those dads that you know. Sorry to those dads out there, but he wasn't one of those ones that was like, do this, don't do that, get here, do like. Sure, you know him taking me to the car track he was taking time off work and it was costing obviously him money and, and time. So he, he did have an expectation of me to at least put some effort in, but yeah, he wasn't like, I wouldn't say he was strict in terms of you must, you know, be on the podium this weekend or you're never racing again. Like he wasn't, he wasn't a dick like that, I guess. But yeah, there was a certain level of expectation because he was trying to build his business he was going through a lot of stress, I guess, at his work, you know, some days, sorry, some weeks, he would be seven days a week at work. So to take time out was tough anyway. So yeah, there was one moment, I was probably 13, 
and uh, he took me to the track one day for a, I think it was just like an open day for practice and I was following two of my like rivals at the time, you know, they were like fighting through practice, like banging wheels and getting quite racy. And I was like quick enough to hang with them, but I wasn't putting myself in, in the fight. So I was just like sitting back very timid. And uh, basically I was just pounding around and not making much effort. And I think at the time it was a little bit of a trend for me. I wasn't actually that aggressive on track. I wasn't really an overtaker at that age, believe it or not. And, uh, and I think he just got frustrated that day. And basically we, we got back to the cart. He didn't talk to me put it in the trailer and, and we went we went home without saying a word. And I knew straight away, I was like, yeah, he's he's certainly mad. Um, but I was also like, I'd know my dad and I was like, he, it's very likely he'll never take me to a go-kart track again. Like I've, yeah, I've just wasted his time. And I'm not saying it was a one-off, like it probably was a build-up and this was maybe over the course of some time. But that moment then I was like, and I called one of my best friends at the time and I said, I, I don't know if I'll ever like race again. Like that was it. So yeah, it was it was a little bit scary. Who cracked first? Um, so I think Mum actually came <laughs> up and like consulted me first, and uh, I want to say Mum was like the peacemaker in it all. But it was more like it was more just Dad wanted to know if I really wanted to do this because it was getting to an age now where kind of had to make a decision. So I don't know if I was thirteen or fifteen or what, but had to make a decision because it was starting to get more expensive and and more time consuming. So I think he just wanted to know like if I was really in it or not because it could no longer be just a hobby, you know, at, at you know, let's say the, the price it was costing. So I had a bit of a, yeah, hard look at myself. But, and, but was, even then, like, honestly, I didn't think I still knew what I wanted. So even when I eventually said I, I want to do this, I still didn't know if that was really what I was good enough to do or, yeah. What was the watershed moment when it became apparent that you were good enough to do this and you were prepared to go to the other side of the world to do it? I think the big one was um, Formula BMW World Final. So it was 2006. I think it was like November 2006. So I'd previously done one race in Europe in the middle of that year. I just did like a one-off race um, in England in Snedderton just to kind of dip my toe in the water and see if I could somehow run with these European gods. Um, Was that the perception? Yeah. Yeah. And every article you read, everything, it's like, it's Europe, you know, and these are the kids that have grown up with it. They started racing four years old and they're this and that, and they're like the big dogs of the sport. So yeah, that was the perception at least. Did you win? I didn't win. No, 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 no. So it's not, it's not a, it's not a superhero story. I came in and I showed them. (laughs) But I I think I, so I did okay in Snedderton. It wasn't bad, but then the main thing I took from that little trip was I I saw the other drivers for, I didn't see them as heroes or superheroes. Let's call them. Like I, I didn't, I no longer put them on a pedestal after that. I was like, okay, they're, they're quick, but they're also normal kids. And yeah, I, I, I definitely convinced myself I should give it another go. And, and then that's when the, the world final came up. Um, in, it was in Valencia. So end of 2000. No, I said 2000. Yeah, 2006. I think. Or was it five? Jeepers. Six. Six. Anyway. Um, and I was like, okay, now this is with all the like Formula BMW championships around the world. They come to Valencia now to do this world final. So I was like, if I could even run in the top 10, you know, I think that's, that's a good start. And uh, I'll cut right through it. I think I finished fifth and that was where I was like, okay, like I, I can actually do this. That was the moment. Yeah, that was the one. And how difficult was it 
to come to the other side of the world because a lot of those European kids you were racing have only got to get on a plane for an hour, an hour and a half. Just mm -hmm. how tough? That's, it's, I think it's still underestimated. And even, even through the year, you know, like what people don't understand is, yeah, after a race, most drivers go back to their families or their friends and, you know, they, they might, yeah, we still train and we're in the gym a lot, but after the gym, then they're spending time with their friends or they're having dinner with everyone. And, um, and that's what we don't really get ever. Yeah. You make new friends, but the day one homies, as, as I call them, you know, you see them one month out of 12. So, um, there's nothing quite like old friends, is there? Exactly. The day exactly. one homies. Yeah. The day one. Yeah, you go. You <laughs> yes. learn something. Yeah. And it's true. And, uh, you know, as, as you get older, you get used to it and you, you know, you, you don't kind of cry yourself to sleep every night, but, um, certainly the first few years and even little things like missing 18th birthdays, 21st birthdays, and knowing that you're kind of alone in a small apartment somewhere and, and they're out, you know, being social and, and living as a teenager, living life and having fun and experiencing partying and, and whatever else there is to come with it. Like that, that's something which is, I guess, a little bit, um, I got on with it, but it's like, yeah, that's a little sacrifice, I guess. But the funny thing was more than anything, I loved Perth. Like I loved being home. Um, I didn't really like traveling, like being on planes and that I wasn't like, I didn't have the traveling bug in me at, at a young age. So knowing that I would leave home, move to Italy, like foreign country, didn't really speak Italian at the time. Not saying I speak it perfectly now, but I'm a bit better. Uh, and then, you know, being on planes as a lifestyle, I just never thought this would be me. <laughs> it's weird. <laughs> it's a massive change, isn't it? I mean, do you ever stop? It's 13 years now, isn't it? That you've since, since that world finals moment. So yeah. you, the, the whole idea of being a racing driver is an old one for you now. Do you ever stop and ask yourself why you race? Uh, yeah, I get, I mean, the, the one thing, as soon as you said that, the first word that came to mind was competition, you know, and since I can remember, I, I have that competitive gene in me, you know, I, I hate losing. I, I love pushing myself against others, seeing if I'm better and, you know, whether that's even video games as a kid or something, I just hated losing, but I also always believed I was better than someone else at something. So I just had that fire in me. And, and but Dan, you don't have to race to get that competition. You can get it in any part of life. I mean, as yeah, a journalist, but... you want to get the story before anyone else. That's the competitive element, isn't it? As a deal maker, you want to get do the deal if you're Bernie Ecclestone. You don't have to race cars to but do But racing that. is like then the ultimate is it? Right. level of competition, at least for me, the way I see it, because you've, you've got all that, but you've got it at high speed and you've got it at with high risk and, you know, high reward. And it's, it's that, I guess that danger and adrenaline element of it, which, which I love as well. And that rush of going fast and going wheel to wheel with someone at whatever speeds it's, I don't know, that certainly drives me. And it's like, I don't know, it's, it's a bit mischievous in a way. Mischievous. Yeah. Yeah. And, uh, I was always quite like at school, I was, I was cheeky. Like I am a cheeky kid and, and maybe that has something to do with it too. Now look, we're, we're in Abu Dhabi, um, in your hotel, there is some salmon sat in front of you, yeah. and I, which isn't getting much attention at the minute. And I feel you need to... That's all right. But, um, Looks healthy. But it's interesting you say the risk reward, because how do the, the perennial dangers of motorsport affect your enjoyment of it? Uh, that's a good word. What's perennial mean? 
Just always Coming there. to learn. They're always there. Oh. They're always hanging over you kind of thing. Uh, I think you, you enjoy that aspect of it because it keeps, I think it keeps like the adrenaline store up high. You enjoy it until it becomes a reality, you know, and that's, that's probably the truth, you know, and it's like, yeah, time heals everything and you forget what things have happened in the past and whatever. But then when it's, when things happen again, you, you realize like, it's like anything, you can kind of take it for granted and you can just jump in a race car and be like, hey, it's just, this is my job. You know, I do it all the time and it, and it, you forget the reality of it as well sometimes. But I think you forget it to a point, but it's always there somewhere in the back of your mind. And that creates the, I think the, that extra level of excitement behind it all. And so when someone like Jules Bianchi, guy you knew very well, I think, did you train together? And Yeah, when I first moved to, to Italy that first year, so we were training out of the same like center clinic and uh, yeah, where, we'd where spend some that? training camps together. In uh, It was Formula Medicine. Oh, Formula so Via Reggio. Uh, Via Reggio, yeah. yeah. Yeah, so uh, he was one of the first drivers I, I ever got to know and, and got to hang out with. So yeah, that was, I guess that, that was a reason as well why that one was, you know, hit so hard because it was, yeah, one of my first European friends, you know, and someone who I, I first went out with and, and had, you know, had some experiences with, so... Yeah. Is that, do you ever feel guilty for enjoying the thrill of the risk when you know that a friend of yours like Jules or more recently Antoine Hubert have paid the ultimate price? Uh, you, there's, there's, a, there's a level of like anger and frustration and all that around it, like, you know, why? And, and I don't know. It's, I, would, I don't know if the words... Guilty. I, I think you do feel guilty if you take it for granted and stop appreciating it. And um, and I've always tried to have like the perspective of, you know, I've said it a few times, like a, a bad day on track for me, whatever. It's, it's a 10th place. It's a 12th place. Like in the scheme of things, like who cares? Like I'm doing what I love and I'm still able to do what I love and, and not everyone is able to. And I don't know. I just, I, I always want to race with a level of appreciation, but also... I think more, I mean, I remember after, after Jules's accident, the one thing I took from that actually was, well, if I am going to strap myself into the car every weekend and, and race, then I'm not doing it justice if I'm not going all in, you know, like what if I'm pounding around scared or half-heartedly and, and something happens, you know, that, that's, that's so much worse than, you know, kind of going for it. And, and I feel like, I think we, we all have the passion you know, all of us start racing for that passion and we all know the risks, but yeah, I think it's, it's silly to, it's silly to change the approach. I, if anything, go leave it all out there and do it justice and, and do people around you proud that you did it with the right intentions. Now you mentioned then a bad day at the office. Um, 2019 hasn't been one of your most successful seasons. I think we can say that, can't we? How frustrating has it been? Definitely no more frustrating than last year. You know, 2018 was frustrating. That was my most frustrating year, I'd say, because it started so promising and then it just never really got going for the most part after that. And I felt like most of the time it was things out of my control and that was the most frustrating. You know, if, if it was me making... 90% of the mistakes, then I could address that and look at myself in the mirror and figure out what to do better. But not saying I'm perfect, but 
I felt more times than not, it was out of my control. And that was the frustration. Um, and this year, yeah, like we haven't had great results all the time and we've had a lot of ups and downs again, but I think it was just more of my, my probably expectation of this year was not as high as what it would have been last year with Red Bulls. So I didn't really set any, okay, if, if, if we're not, you know, fifth by X race, then I'm going to be feeling like this. I just rolled with it and I, I knew there was always going to be work to do. So I didn't let the result get the better of me. Now you strike me as someone who likes to see the positive in things. Is mm -hmm. that fair? Is that correct? Yes. How much has this year tested your resolve mentally then? Not much, not much at all because I'll tell you why. <laughs> because the, let's say the bad days were my most encouraging days in terms of how I felt about the sport and how I felt about myself and what I want to get. So true story, Austria. Austria was one of our worst weekends of the year. And this is towards the end of the race. I was out of the points. There wasn't, unless there were, even with a safety car, like our race wasn't changing much. So I had a bit of time to think inside the helmet, um, which you can do. And uh, I was driving around and I was actually saying like, this isn't fun. Like I'm, this race is not fun for me right now. But instead of being like, this isn't fun, I want to quit and walk away because this sucks. It was like, I don't belong here and I don't want to be running around 14th and I, I want to get back to the front and I believe I can and I believe we can be better. So it, it just, it fueled, it fueled my motivation and like my, yeah, I was frustrated and angry, but it like fueled a lot of positivity from it, which I was like, it just made me want to get back to the front quicker. And it kind of, yeah, that hunger was apparent more than ever during that race. And I was just, yeah, I don't know. It was That's a good thing. So whereas you see that you can grow organically with Renault, you felt at Red Bull last year, I have to get out. Very dis Two very distinct emotions, aren't different, yeah. different places to be. Yeah, it is. And I think, look, go, like touching on the Red Bull scenario, like I joined there after they'd won four in a row, four world titles in a row. So like they were the team at the time to be with and, and they were the team that was, if I was good enough, was going to give me my first world title, so to speak. And so five years there, yeah, we got podiums, won races, but we never, ever got close to fighting for a world title. That's, that's the truth. You know, I never went to the last race, probably not even the last three races with a mathematical chance of winning. So I felt like I gave it enough time. I think five years was enough time. And there wasn't, I guess there wasn't enough progress in the five years to, to show that we'd get back to the front. I mean, when I say about the front, like winning, like Mercedes is doing. Um, so I felt like the ability to become more frustrated was was higher in an environment which I saw was a little bit of a stalemate as opposed to Renault, which was on the up. It was a chance for me to just have something fresh and, and even for my, just to clear my head in a way as well, um, work with new people and, and all the rest of it. So yeah, it was nothing like personal to Red Bull or, or even like the personnel, like I, I built some amazing relationships in that team, um, but it was just as a whole, you know, the picture as a whole seemed less appealing for me then. So how did Helmut Marco take it, for example? How did you break the news? To well, so it sucked, like <laughs> for sure. I, look, one thing about me is I, I don't like 
because I think because I'm happy and positive and whatever I don't like letting people down you know even if it's like if I have to cancel a dinner like if my mates like we're going to dinner and if I end up canceling I feel bad so I don't like being that person um <laughs> but of course at some point you got to do what you got to do so um yeah I, I called because I was not in I wasn't in Europe so I couldn't see them face to face to break the news so I called uh both Helmut and Christian um and Helmut was I want to say less surprised I feel that because we'd negotiated like back and forth a bit and it had carried on quite a, quite long I guess he probably knew or suspected that I was maybe looking for something else um so he was yes yeah, surprised but I think he even said it on the phone he goes I kind of knew this was coming um where Christian, Christian, it was actually a bit more awkward because <laughs> he thought I was joking. So no. I was like, oh no. I was like, uh, no, I'm not. And he's like, no, come on. Like you're having a laugh. I was like, uh, like, what do I say? Do I say, I wish I was joking, but I'm not. Or so it was a bit more, um, I guess it was a bit more awkward, but actually once, once the realization hit, we actually had a, had a good chat. And, he and when was you good. see those guys now in the paddock, do, or, or when I see yeah. them, yeah, no, it's it's fine. Like, I think you know, it's in short, it's like business. You know, business is business, and I'm not the first driver to ever leave and move somewhere. And yeah, it is what it is. But I still have, you know, helmet. Helmet likes to have a few bets here and there. So we still like. I'm not really a gambler, but we still interact through a little bit of betting um, on betting. the side. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> on what? Or just like little little gimmicky things, but but look, that's our way of uh, let's say continuing some some interaction. But he's fun, and Christian Christian's cool. He's uh, he was pretty good through the whole process last year, and yeah, you kind of because I did most of the negotiating, I guess, with Helmet, and Christian was. Um, more the more the guy to talk to or lean on. I Dan, guess. What, what's interesting <laughs> is that because you even were bothering to negotiate, it wasn't a clear cut thing initially. Then that you needed wanted to get out. Yeah, yeah. I guess you're right. Yeah. So there was. Um, I think one thing is as a. I don't even want to say as a driver, just as a person with with anything you do. Obviously, if you have a belief in yourself, you do hold a certain value on what what you. I don't even want to say necessarily in monetary terms, but you value yourself as an individual and, and you want to be, and you want to feel like that's being um, seen. And, uh, you know, in a team, obviously you compare yourself to your teammate and okay, then this, that, it just, yeah, working things out. It's just, I wasn't always convinced that I was being valued as much as I guess I valued myself. So that was part of it. Um, I was going to say something else there. I think I had a good, and, a good and, one. But and then, and then Dan, if but yeah, you and Max, um, Baku, well done, Baku, well done, well done, Baku. <laughs> For those yeah, people listening, yeah, who don't remember, I was hoping we'll talk about like music and stuff. Oh no, we'll get there. We're going to get onto music. We're going to get onto music, big man. But um, it is an F one podcast, I guess. But uh, you know, I think I remember trying to engage you in conversation after that, and there wasn't much coming out you you were as angry as i've ever seen you after that yeah and probably more so the the days after um yeah i guess a few things like came up to the surface a little bit after and yeah um because there'd been a bit going yeah. on the laps leading up to the contact hadn't there yeah there was there was and and i guess look 
I was in the moment as well and you know you're battling and yes it's a teammate but I also see everyone as a competitor so it's teammate or not yeah we're, we're gonna race hard and, and it is what it is and we'd touch wheels and a few times where it was always it was you know Max coming into me as opposed to me coming into him and I, I was part of me was like I'm waiting for the team to say boys cut the shit but um never really got that so and I I don't really I hate when I hear you know guys on the radio ah oh, tell him to do this ah oh, he's blocking me oh he's like I I'd never want to kind of come across as a whinger. So, uh, did you say just, anything? I can't remember. I don't think I did at the time. No, no I just on the I was like, All right, I was well because I was I was like, a, I don't want to be a whinger. B, if I'm good enough, I'll find a way to pass him. And C, I was also waiting for the team to address it. And I was like, All right, they're going to tell us to swap. You know, I'm faster. They'll just say, All right, boys, you've tried. It's not working. Swap positions or whatever before you do crash. So then, anyway, we pitted. So I eventually passed Max. And then the undercut wasn't powerful. I think the overcut was more powerful because tire warm-up was what. So then I've pit first. I think they pit me first. And then eventually Max had come back out in front of me. So then I was furious as well because I'm like, guys, I've put all the hard work in. I passed him. And now he's, he's back in front of me. So it's like, surely you're going to let, like, just let, him, let, him get, uh, let me go this time because we're not going to have the same result. So I came on the radio and I did then say something. I was like, boys, you know, it didn't work. Like he's going to let me pass. And I think my engineer just said, no, you're, you're racing max, which means like no team orders. Like you've got to do it again. And he's like, get your head down and let's go. And, uh, I still believe, I mean, I still believe I've let it go, but I sold him the dummy. So there was enough room originally on the inside. Then, you know, he closed it and then we crashed. And I'll be honest at the, at the time of impact, I was like, who cares? Like they deserved this. So that was, that was my honest feeling. I wasn't sad or oh, I just lost points. It was more just anger and like, yeah, I was, I'll say it now, but I was like, fuck you guys. <laughs> Cause I, I think everyone saw it coming, you know, then yeah, the, I just, I felt like then it was also very like 50, 50 where I didn't believe it was a 50, 50. So it was kind of then the, the days after, I guess I was still quite bitter about... Because you didn't get the support that you expected from the team. Yeah, yeah. And if there's a, if we can trace a moment, one moment where you thought... I'm going to cry. <laughs> <laughs> that, is that the moment? Is that the moment where you actually decided I've got to go and do something else? Uh, certainly the week after that, yeah. Like I decided in my mind that I need to move on. Did you then, but then, you know, then you go like Monaco, like what was Monaco a month later? And I have like, you know, the highest of highs. And I'm like, oh, I was just emotional in Baku. Like we'll, we'll figure it out. But, but for sure, Baku was like, yeah, it was a tough one for me to move on from. And so when you look at the Ferrari guys now having their moment in Brazil, do you think that's, that's nothing? <laughs> that yeah, is chicken's feed compared to what, what I've been going through. Um, I mean, I don't know the, the aftermath of that and, and what, what happened, you know, but uh, I actually, you know what, on that incident, oh, I kind of feel sorry for them because it was... For both of them? Or? Well, yeah, like, or just the, the whole, the impact it had because I don't want to say I feel sorry for them, but it, it, was, it was very minor. Like, obviously, you look at me and Max, you know, I've come up from behind there's you know it's a big crash it's high speed where this was like a I, I just felt like in at times a little touch like you know what Seb um and and Leclerc had it could have just been a touch and that was it you know but both of them got damage and punches and there were sparks and 
I feel it was a big, um, uh, what's the word? <laughs> Catastrophe. A big, uh, yeah, like it was casino. A, you know, it was. It, the it outcome was, was very big. Yeah, but it, it could have been, been nothing. Small, yeah, yeah. It, it was a very small movement. Yeah. But yeah, so. And obviously the media and everyone will play up yeah. on it. And I'm sure probably back at, at, uh, at the factory, it wasn't that pleasant afterwards this week, but or last week, whenever it was. But, uh, but yeah, I feel like minor Maxis was a bit more in, in dance. It was a bit more intense. Yeah, it was, wasn't it? <laughs> yeah. Now, you, something you mentioned in that little chat was your worth and things like that. And I did just want to ask you about fame and fortune um, mm-hmm. and how that has changed you as a person or has it not and you know what is it like to be able you can basically buy anything you want what is it like to have that pink ticket if you like hmm well I'll, I'll be on it like I don't I normally don't like I don't like talking about money I guess or in, in general and I feel like with sports unfortunately like a lot a lot of athletes you know it revolves around money and how much does he earn and yet there's so many other professions in the world that actually would earn more money, but no one knows. And so I feel it's a way that people can quickly judge someone or bring them down. So I don't like that aspect of that. But, but anyway, um, I mean, I'm sure part of it's changed me a bit, but no more than growing old, like, you know, being 30 and, you know, people will say, oh, you, you know, you've changed. Yeah. But I was 21 when you last saw me, that's nine years. Like, have you not changed in nine years or something? So I think people also forget that life happens, but yeah, I mean, I would say what's changed me more than anything is through the job. You travel so much as you know, and, and, and you, you fortunately meet a lot of people in, in different walks of life. And I think through living through those experiences changes you the most. Um, but yeah, I mean, getting paid well to do what I love, that's, that's amazing. And, and I'm not going to say it's not, of course it is. And it, it is nice to yeah, be able to, you know, treat friends to nice dinners and do things like that. It, it's cool. But I think also having a close family and close friends, still some day one homies. Um, I think they're the ones that keep me from changing in a, in a negative way. And, you know, with, with celebrities and that, the ones that maybe do not change for the better, uh, if you want to call it that, I think they're the ones that don't have, you know, a good support network around them. And, and that's you, a bit unfortunate because you, I can see it. Like imagine someone who, you know, was earning $5 an hour till they were whatever, 25 years old. And then their hit single came out and all of a sudden they're earning, you know, $20 million a year. If no one tells them what to do with that, then yeah, it's, it's, it'd be hard. So I, I can sympathize with the ones that don't have, uh, let's say good people around them. And is that one of the reasons why, I mean, Michael, your trainer, you've known all your life. Is that right? He, he's a Perth boy, right? Yeah. Yeah. So I've known Michael he, since, since we were about 10, 11 years old. So you're going to tell me he's the one who's changed, right? <laughs> yeah. Yeah. He's changed. Jeez. Nice hotels, all this. <laughs> I got to pull him in. Um, but no, it's like I, I've, and again, you go through it. And you realize, and at different times of, of your life and your career, you'll know what works best. And I'm at a point now where I feel, because we spend so much time together, you know, with people around you, you need to have mates as, as much as professional people, you know, helping you out. You need to have mates as well. And Michael's both, he's a mate, but he's also very professional in what he does with his, you know, the physical aspect of it. But yeah, even like, even me bringing friends to races, like maybe 10 years ago, that was a distraction for me. 
but now it's it's the best thing for me you know it, it takes me away from the intensity of it and I get to kind of celebrate and enjoy moments with friends and yeah I don't know it's uh it's cool and I love I love when mum and dad come as well that's that's nice and you got a sister yeah who's got two kids two kids yeah you're good uncle? I'm, I'm an uncle yeah I'm a good uncle for sure <laughs> I'm a very affectionate person how do you, um, so she lives in Perth, right? How yeah. how do you stay in contact with her and her kids? And so I'm, I I'm not a massive like technology nerd or whatever, but FaceTime is a beautiful thing. So um, yeah, I'll FaceTime. I mean, I'll FaceTime her, but it's really to speak to the kids. <laughs> uh, well, I guess every probably second day. Oh, really? As much as yeah, that? and they're young. They're three and one. But they're they're cute and I love them. And uh, what have you taught? You've taught the three year old to say something, <laughs> haven't you? <laughs> I've taught him some bad words, but like I'm saying, a year ago, and he still says it. And every time he sees me, because he knows it's bad now, he won't even say like, "Hey, hey, Uncle Daniel." Like he'll say what he says, and it's bad. I hope he stops. I, <laughs> but I it's funny. To, I can't help but laugh. So he keeps. Are you going to share with the listeners what you've taught your three year old? <laughs> Niece or nephew? The, the nep- uh, nephew. He's right. the older one, Isaac. So I don't even know how it started. So I think it was I was home last year for Christmas. And look, I might have had like $20 on the table or something. Like the, there was some cash around. And he picked it up and he's like, oh, my cash. And I was like, no, it's mine. He goes, my cash. And I was like, do you know what that's called? That's called cash money. And I was just trying to like teach him, you know, just being an idiot, you know, like cash money. And he's like, cash money. And then I was like, say cash money, bitches. (laughs) He said, cash money, bitches. And now all he says is cash money, bitches. I'm like, oh, no. But because it's you can't not laugh. So he sees you laugh, you, he gets a reaction and he says it more. So And what does Sister Michelle make of all this? I mean, I mean, at first, yeah, it was fun and games, but now it's like he's going to go to school soon. Yeah. We're going to stop him saying this. So Good it's funny. It's yeah. funny. But I, uh, he's like, he's, he's me. Like so many things I see already and he's, he's cheeky, but he loves cars, loves bikes. He's, yeah. Yeah, he's going to be trouble. Like, he's legit going to be trouble. <laughs> now, look, where can't you go uh, in terms of where are you most noticed, recognised? Where is your life hardest and where is your life easiest? Hardest? Uh, I would say, yeah, is Perth. Again, it, it's a small town. Well, it's a, it's a pretty big city now, but still small town, like, mentality. And I guess the the reality is not many famous people so to speak have come from perth so gilly i'm a huh gilly gilly yeah yeah, <laughs> yeah gilly. adam gilchrist by the way australian um, mate there's been yeah cricketer legend no there had obviously there has but i guess international on an international scale like not much so i guess you're a bit of a big fish in a small pond and naturally yeah you you're going to get recognized when you go out and yeah it's like i love perth and i love being home but it, it's it is hard to like go out you know with friends and especially now with camera phones and that and, you know, not be like you. Yeah, it's just, it's hard to like completely feel, I guess, like you've got your freedom and I get that and it's cool. And look, most times, and I want to say most times, 99% of the times people, if they do come up, it's 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 friendly and it's fun and they're fans or whatever. So it's not negative at all. So I, I think that's something I've got to um, appreciate and understand. Just while we're talking 
of Australia. Does um, I mean Mark Webber had a I wouldn't say he had a completely easy ride from the Aussie media. I think I can say that. I think that's fair. I think he. Um, how how do you feel? Do you reckon you get a good run from the guys back home? For the most part, yes. But I I mean I was I was very. I guess frustrated and and I guess angry and a bit bitter after like Melbourne this year, um, the race in Melbourne because I'd felt like I'd worked or I'd been worked to the ground all week, you know, and you know I accepted every request and tried to like please everyone. Is 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 really the is really what it was. Um, yet you know the race was shit. My first race with Renault and it didn't work out and. You know, I did. I did the media afterwards, and then I, you know, then I I'd, I'd kind of done everything that week, and yet there were still people like, oh, you know, why why he didn't speak to us, or why won't he speak to us? And yeah, but we we have to speak to him, and we want to know. And like, there's a level where it's like you, they don't understand a what I've done and what I'm going through, and just as as a sportsman, anyways, like having a, a low. Sometimes you just need some space and privacy, and they don't always get that. And I, I feel bad because I'm saying they, it's not all of them. And it's not only in Australia, you get it in, in other places around the world. But uh, yeah, it's just, at some point you've got to be selfish. And, 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 and this is the way I said it. It's like, okay, do you guys want me to do a thousand interviews and keep all the newspapers happy this week and have a shit race? Or would you rather I, okay, said no to a few things, but had a great race. And then they can all still write something good about me or whatever. So it's like, at some point, the racing has to be more important than mm. so keeping people happy. Will you approach Melbourne 2020 yes. differently? Yes, 100%. Because the truth is, I don't enjoy it. I don't enjoy Melbourne and, and I want to. And I'm not saying I can never enjoy it, but the, the objective is to start enjoying Melbourne, you know. And, um, what, what and the last few years I haven't because it's there's so much... There's just too much on that weekend. And, and again, I try to please everyone and, and don't please myself. So I'm getting takeaway every night and I'm sitting in a room and I'm not, I'm not getting out. And, and Melbourne is one of the greatest cities in the world. Like it really is. I love it. And I want to be able to enjoy it. And unfortunately, I haven't been. So I want to change it so that I don't, you know, your home Grand Prix should be your favorite one of the year. So that's what I want it to be. What can you do differently? I mean, like have a one press conference on the Wednesday before and leave it at that. Yeah. Come here, you got me for an hour, ask me whatever you want, and then yeah, I'm out. Exactly. That kind of thing. Yeah, exactly. Um, Whereas what before it's always been lots of little requests everywhere. Yeah, yeah, and it's and it's look, and it's good, like don't get me wrong, there's a lot of attention which is positive and it's nice, but again, I'm there to race. I'm not there to, you know, be on the front page or the back page of the newspaper. You know, I think that that will happen if I have a good result. So let's take it for that. So if Perth is where you're most recognized, where can you go in the world where you're least recognized and can just be Danny Rick? Um, I mean, I'm sure there's, I'm sure there's many places, but I mean, even places we race like Austin, Austin's a place where you can just, I've been to that many little bars and music venues and that, and no one has, has said anything. Do you go to bars during the weekend? Yeah. That's quite rock yeah. and roll. Yeah, it's pretty cool. I mean, when I say it, but it doesn't mean I'm drinking alcohol, but yeah, I'm, yeah, I'm yeah. in a bar. Yeah, having... and, and normally because there's music there, you know, that that's the main the main purpose of those is the music is like, I love music, but it's it's an escape as, as well. So it, it's a way to get out, you know, of kind of the racetrack mentality and all that and just go and see someone perform and see someone else be in their element. That's, that's really cool. De-stress. 
Mm. De-stress, exactly. So tell, talk to me about this love of... Um, is it love of live music in particular? Or mm. can you play an instrument? Unfortunately not. So I, I, I was not... Um, born with a musical gift. Uh, I, I feel I was born with musical ears though. I, I feel I have an ear for good music. Um, but yeah, I love, I love music like for so many reasons, but you know what it does, like I'll hear, I mean, I, I could have listened to a song a hundred times before, but I'll play it now and it'll give me goosebumps, you know, and it has that effect, um, which is something in itself. It's like a photo album. You know, you, you hear a song and it takes you back to a certain moment in time. And, and I think everyone can relate to that. Oh, that, that song. Yeah, that was that time, you know, my, my school ball or, you know, my whatever it was, my, my school dinner dance or, you know, the very first day I landed in Italy. That was the song that was playing or something. So, yeah, I, I love that of it. Um, it's a memory. And uh, I think seeing live music, it's one of the only things I do in my life, which I'm completely in the moment, you know, like I don't have any outside thoughts when I'm seeing someone perform and it's, yeah, it's, I guess it's powerful. It's beautiful. It's a, uh, it's a lot of things. And I guess, yeah, seeing someone, as I said before, like in their element, yeah, you just, you have to appreciate that. It's, it's awesome. Irrespective of the type of music, just to see any, any live music. Yeah. If, if, if that person is in the moment, you can appreciate it. Absolutely. Absolutely. And for sure I have my preferences of genre and that, but really anything live is, is pretty much going to hit it for me um, for the most part. And I, I'm, I'm a bit of a sucker for like the smaller intimate venues and the less known artists. What, Dan, what's the furthest you've traveled to see live music? Um, actually, so I went to Colorado last year to um, Red Rocks, Red Rocks Amphitheater. It's an iconic venue. And uh, so where were we at the time? We were in, I guess it wasn't that far. We were in Montreal. So what's that? Four hour flight or something? It's far enough. I think that's And far I specifically enough. went there for, for, this, uh, for this event. So it was far enough. But um, yeah, that, that was, you know, one of the greatest nights of my life. Like it was, it was awesome. And I think as well, music brings people together. You know, like I looked and I vividly remember looking around that night at this amazing like natural amphitheater and everyone, everyone you can see everyone's teeth, everyone is smiling and there's like just a, a happiness that comes with music and, and a, I guess a form of like unity and it's, it's, it's awesome. And in Colorado, you're not being recognized and selfies exactly. and all that kind of stuff as well, right? So yeah, that almost it's nice. Helps. I can enjoy yeah. it, enjoy yeah. the moment. Um, but yeah, I mean, there's, look, there's honestly many places I go without being recognized. F1's not on the map everywhere. But, um, but yeah, there are some, yeah. Tell me about cool. this love of, of America, <laughs> not just... American music because you've got the place in LA. Um, how long have you had that place? And so yeah, I think why? I think so. America, as as a bit we just touched on, or two things we just touched on. Yeah, it's a it's a place I don't really get recognised much. So it is a place I can feel like I got some, I guess, freedom and and let my hair down. Um, and there's so much music that happens in America, music and sports. I mean, there's stuff happening all the time, you know. So. I guess a few things I love, they're so accessible in America. Um, and then it, it's very much, a lot of it's like Australia, you know? So for me, it's like a bigger undiscovered version of Australia. So it's got all the things I love about home, just with a bit more, 
you know, and a, a bit more as well because I still haven't seen much of America. So it's still very new for me. And um, yeah, and uh, so LA, so I first went, it's not like I've been going to LA my whole life. I first went there in 2014. I think it was before Austin maybe. And uh, yeah, it all started then. I, I, I loved it and I felt like it was actually very similar to even Perth, you know, the coastline and it's very spread out and, and the weather, of course. And then, but yeah, I kept going back every year and um, with friends and that in the summer and, you know, renting Airbnbs or whatever like that. And got to a point, I was like, maybe I should actually just look for a place. And uh, I'd been there long enough and many times enough. I was like, I, I like it. You know, it's not, it's not a phase. I'm not going to buy a place and in six months get sick of it. And it's a good escape and there's a lot happening. It's, you know, entertainment and all that. It's there. My cousin lives there. Um, yeah, so when I can, I'll, I'll go out there and get, get a bit of time off. Describe a day in LA. Where are you? Are you on the coast? Are you in the hills? Uh, hills. Right. Hills. So I, I love the coast as well, like through Santa Monica, all that, even down Malibu is beautiful. Uh, I spent time like more down closer to San Diego as well, a whale's vagina, which is awesome. I knew you were going to look at me. You have no idea what I'm talking about, do you? Anchorman? No. Oh, all right. I hope there's at but least 10 people smile, listening to this laugh. <laughs> just, just, anyway, it's off a movie. It's very, very famous with... Anyway, I'm going to shut up. Some it's Will Ferrell. Most it's people Will probably. Okay. Um, He's funny. Yes. So no, and t- I don't know. There's... Look, what, what's great is you can do... As, as such a, as a big city as it is, you can get out. You know, like you can be hiking. You know, you, you drive 20 minutes and you're hiking, you know, in some canyons and you're by yourself. You're mountain biking or you're surfing. Um, or you're seeing a Lakers game, or you're seeing someone perform in concert. It's there's just a lot going on, and it's there if you want it, but it's not. You can also just chill out and just live normally. It's it's become it's a bit a of balance. a it's become a bit of a destination city for Formula One, hasn't it? In terms of um, Lewis spends a lot of time out there. Jensen as well. Do, yeah. you, do you have a bump? yeah? He's moved there. I think he's yeah. full full time. Do you have there. a bump into? Jensen or yeah, Jensen. Do, really? Jensen, um, and actually, funnily enough, I literally bumped into, well, two Max in in the August break. So Max was there for a few days, and we I literally drove past. He was walking. Uh, I don't know where it was in uh, in Hollywood somewhere. He was walking on the street, and he didn't know, like, didn't know what car I was driving, anything. But I looked. And it's, it's just like he was looking and we both waved at each other and it was the biggest coincidence. That's mine. Um, that was pretty cool. Yeah. Did you actually hook up and go and have a... We didn't because I'll tell you why. I want to say, so we messaged each other saying like, oh my gosh, can't believe I saw you. And I think he had like, maybe he had a basketball game to go to that night and then we'll leave in the next day or something. So we didn't, we didn't hook up, but, um, but I would have, and mate, some, some viewers are probably like, ah, as if he's going to catch up, but I would have happily caught up with with Max uh, out there. And I think when you're not in the racing environment as well, like us as drivers are probably surprised with how many other drivers would actually get on with. So yeah, we're, we're pretty chill away from the track. I think you were a very good influence on Max when you were teammates in terms of, I think you, you dissipated some of his intensity, which I think helped him grow as a person and as a driver without, does that make any sense? Yeah, I well, thanks. I'll say thanks. <laughs> yeah, I'm being uh, a compliment. That's good. <laughs> look, I I believe it. Like, I think I think we were good for each other. I, I think he he certainly, um, yeah, he grew in that time. And I want to say that yeah, he probably learned a bit from me being 
with the team longer and being older. And you can see it. Like he's certainly – he's less – you know, less whatever fiery, erratic than than he was, you know, a couple of years ago, and and he's matured, and he he kind of I think he found his place now, and yeah, if if, if I contributed to that, great. If not, then that's cool as well. Um, but it's interesting, but I'll and take, you say you're compliment, and you say you are you are mates. That's that's yeah. Actually, I given everything. Yeah, given everything, and given you know Baku, and and even other times there was Budapest in 2017. Lap one, he took me out. Thanks, Max. <laughs> I was there's actually pictures of me two, flipping, right? flipping him off. Yeah. <laughs> so like, but even that, like, we quickly overcame any of that stuff. And I think ultimately, it's because we respected each other. And yeah, in the heat of the moment, things are going to happen. And I know how competitive he is, and and he knows how competitive I am. So things are going to happen. But I think we respect each other's will to compete, and we could kind of move on because of that. It's like, yeah, well, yeah. Screw you, screw you, but well, we it know kind why. Of straight, it is kind of <laughs> straight talking screw you from both of you. You, see, you yeah. seem to me to be pretty – there wouldn't be uh, loads of – was Max big into the sort of politicking and the games? No, within, yeah. no, there, there wasn't. At least yeah. maybe I was too silly to see it, but, <laughs> but no, there wasn't. And I think, yeah, we were quite yeah. – we knew what we were doing. We knew what we were after and we kind of just got on with it. When you think about it, you've had some, you've had some teammates, haven't you? Sebastian Vettel, four-time world champion. Max Verstappen, surely, a, having seen Sebastian work close up, do you think Max has what it takes to win world championships? Yeah, from, from, a, from a talent point of view, for sure. And, and I think the, the only, I mean, the, the main thing now is it'd hopefully be with me as well and with anyone else that you know, is, is in that position one day. It's, yes, talent is going to probably put you in the fight, to be a world champion, but then can you can you handle the rest of it? The pressure, the 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 environment, the I hate the word, but the expectation, all of that. Can can you handle that every night? You know, will, will you still sleep well at night, or or are you going to start to overthink things and fatigue yourself, and and then be less sharp on track? There's there's so many other variables, but just on a on a purely talent point of view, then yeah, he he has he has what it takes to do it. I'm going to have to make the comparison because I'm intrigued to know the answer. Um, uh, Seb or Max? Uh, I feel bad saying. No, all right. No, I, I've, I've been asked this comparison before and, and I have said, I've said Max and I'll say Max more, more for, look, Seb is like top tier or whatever, but mainly my, my reasoning for Max is as well that he's still got age on his side. You know, and he's still got the ability to. We all can still grow and get better for sure, but I guess his window is bigger because he's still young. So, from that point of view, I think he could still grow into something better than he already is. Hopefully, not too much for everyone's sake, but yeah. It's interesting. You wiped the floor with Seb in 2014, didn't you? And one of the things he said at the time was this is much easier for Daniel because he's come from Toro Rosso and a fifth place finish for him yeah. is a really big step up. Whereas obviously fifth place for me, four-time world champion isn't good enough. So it's much easier for you. Yeah. In, I mean, in some, in some aspects, yeah, absolutely. Like it's easier. I mean, I'll make the comparison even this year and it's just a, I'm not, it's not a comparison to judge his results or my results, just a pure, I think for Charles, and as I experienced, it is easier going from a midfield car to a top car because it, it does things better. You know, oh, it's got more grip. Oh, wow, it's easy. I can brake later and, and it's, 
yeah, you've got the pressure then of a bigger team and, and yeah, more emphasis on your results probably. But the purely driving aspect, Shell would find the Ferrari easier this year as I found the Red Bull in 2014 easier. Where me coming from the Red Bull to the Renault, that's more challenging this year, you know, and that that's something obviously I, I experienced early in the season. It took me a bit of time to get, get the hang of it. But you're going from something you know from great to good is harder than going from good to great um but uh yeah so from seb's point i i get that and i've i've done now both of it so i i see that and with yeah look at thinking of renault again then you say max has got time on his side uncle dan uncle is dan. now he's <laughs> now that's right. now but i mean you've got a you've got you've got another 10 years if you want it but it's got to happen sooner rather than later for you now. Um, yep. How confident are you about 2020 and 2021? So I, I definitely have more confidence in both myself and the team in 2020. So I, I believe I can be better and naturally spending more time with them, I will be. And there's some ideas, you know, even like before the season starts, just to get the ball rolling, you know, with the team and just to, yeah, which I wouldn't have had this year because everything was new and whatever. So Confident that both of us can grow and get better. Um, and then 2021, who knows what's going to happen. It's exciting, I think, for the sport. Um, yeah, look, I maybe I'm still fast and learning in 10 years and, and still want it as bad as I do now. Um, but yeah, ideally, sooner rather than later. I definitely still have, like, I even though I've turned 30 this year, I still feel I'm on, personally, like the younger end of the spectrum than the older. Um, so I'm certainly not washed up yet. Um, and yeah, if anything, like as, as I touched on earlier, like this year has fueled me more than anything to get back to the podiums, you know, feel that success. And, and I think the reason for that is because I believe, you know, I can be. Is it a fear of failure or the lure of success? Um, say that in more simplistic <laughs> terms. It's a bit late. <laughs> what, what drives you? What is it? Is it wanting to do that? Should we on the podium? and win races or is it actually getting out of bed and just not wanting to fail i don't want to be that guy ah um carrot or stick okay uh i don't know maybe maybe a bit of both maybe like i w wouldn't say it's a fear of failure but it's it's more like well i hate losing and so getting up out of bed knowing i've got something to fight for that's like that's certainly a, a driving, um, that's a drive for me. But I mean, the success and all that, like the feel, I mean, winning Monaco, like I've never felt a high like that. And I've never been surrounded by so many people like feeding off my high, you know? So that's, that's hard. That's hard to turn down. Um, so I want that again. I want that. But um, yeah, I still feel like, you know, the champagne and the trophy, that's, that's like the icing on the cake, but crossing the line, knowing like you've been a beast more than anyone else on that given day, you know, uh, across nationalities, you know, uh, all other drivers from around the world. Like that's, that's a feeling of like power, I guess. And that's a feeling of, I don't know. I don't know if it's an alpha male thing or what, but it's, yeah. Of your seven wins, in terms of your performance in the cockpit, was Monaco the one, given that you had all the issues with the car and... Uh, or is there can you yeah. think of a better race that you drove and won 
I, w- I want to say they're all pretty good. <laughs> no, I'll look. And they if were. I, hey? If I, they were. Yeah, I guess. Look, going through like mentally, mentally I mean, China, for sure. China last year. Mentally, China was cool as well. Thanks. <laughs> no, mentally, yes. So Monaco was all. the hardest. Which one? So Monaco. Me- yeah, and like that was, I guess, the most proud because I was, I guess, mentally exhausted, and there was so I had so much. Um, what do you like in internal dialogue with myself that race? Because I was like, you know, 2016, obviously I felt I was supposed to win. I didn't. And then, you know, I had the problem on I think lap 28 and all uh, immediately I was like 2016. And I was then thinking, why, why me? Is it, is it a curse? But I don't believe in that shit. All like, this what is, is going it? on whilst yeah. racing, oh, yeah, leading yeah. the Monaco yeah. Grand Prix. hundred percent, hundred percent. And then like, so then you start to feel down and I, I literally just wanted to close my eyes and just be like, I'm done with this shit. Um, and then, you know, my engineers like coming in my ear as well, like talking, saying this is that. And I'm, I'm just like, oh, is this really happening? And, and then have a few deep breaths and I'm like, no, no, I'll, I'll figure it out. I'll figure it out. And then I asked him, I was like, is it going to get better? He's like, no, this is it. Try and manage it. So then you feel like deflated again. And then you start to, you realize being deflated is not helping. So you slowly turn your mindset to pick little positives or little targets. So immediately then I was like, all right, engine's still running. Like I'm still leading. Therefore I can still win. This isn't 2016, it's 2018. It's like, fuck that shit, that's happened. It's not going to happen again. We'll find a way. And it's like, let's just five laps at a time. Let's just, let's do the next five laps. If you're still leading and and Seb hasn't passed you, then let's see, go another five. So then I started, and then the longer I stayed in front of him and held the lead, then the more my confidence came back and and my belief that the car was going to make it. And uh, I got to a point where I said, all right, I've got to manage my tires as well. But if I get to the last 20 laps, 20 laps to go, still in the lead, then we've got it. Like that, that was the finish line for me. Cause I was like, no, the tires will get to the end after 20 laps. We're going to be fine. If Seb hasn't passed me by then we're sweet. And that was the target I'd set. How much slower were you lapping than you, you could have done? Oh shit. Like, was it? I want to say four or five seconds. Like yeah. it was a lot. Yeah. It was a lot. But so that raises a question for me in terms of, were you surprised that Seb didn't have a proper go at you? Because he didn't. I don't, I don't remember him. Want, I mean, I'm sure it was brilliant defensive driving on your part, but also yeah. he didn't once have a proper crack at you, I didn't think. Yeah, you're Did right. Did that surprise and, you? Um, well, it's like, so I think, I know he got really close uh, in like Casino Square, at least one lap. I think it's turn three or something. But fortunately, Monaco is very one line that as, as long as I didn't leave a door open, I think he knew that he he couldn't really, there wasn't really a, a place where he could really dive bomb and, and make the move stick. And actually by having low power actually meant that my traction off the corners was pretty good. I didn't have to worry <laughs> about wheel spin. So Every I created yeah. enough of a gap off the corners where he was catching me a lot by the end of the straight, but it was a little too little too late in most scenarios and uh yeah and i think he was then starting to suffer with his tires but uh, i don't know it was yeah 
there was a lot going on. We were, yeah. Because Dan, that raises another question for me. That oh, you know, the, all the, the overtaking debate is one that's going on and on and has done for as long as Formula One has been in existence, really. And then, of course, the front wing came in this year. It was meant to help overtaking. It hasn't. <laughs> <laughs> that was never going to work. <laughs> but so, twenty twenty one, the guys at Formula One have done lots of research, and the hope is that it will be better. But how much? of overtaking actually comes down to desire from the bloke behind because you're quite good at licking the stamp and sending it aren't you and therefore you know what made me think of this is Seb not really having a proper crack I know Monaco's narrow and everything but how much of it is actually driver related rather than car related yeah it's um I mean I guess there's a bit of both but for sure for sure the driver does I would say make a bigger difference when it comes to overtaking and and I've experienced that firsthand you know I, I used to be timid and and I guess a bit scared and whatever when I was younger and I never really pulled the trigger and then I started to and I was like oh yeah I can do it and so a lot of it's on us and also a lot of it's on how much you're willing to risk and are you are you content trying and failing and yeah maybe losing some points or sitting back getting a couple points but flying back home Sunday night with like, uh, yeah, I could have done better today or, you know, I'm not doing this justice because I didn't put it all out there. So yeah, depends how, how conservative you want to be, but I'm, I'm, I would much rather try fail than not try at all. And, and there was too many times when I was younger, I didn't try at all. And I was just filled with regret and just crappy feelings. You're not talking about in Formula 1, you're talking way back. Yeah, way back. Yeah. I mean, even I'll be like even the first year in F1, I think I was still a bit intimidated by the speed of it all and I, I was not that confident probably to Well, hang on, to be fair to you, I don't think the HRT was was meant to, that wasn't gonna be overtaking. Who is who, who are you year. planning on lining up when you were driving that? Seb as he loved me. Yeah. <laughs> Just sends it up the inside. Yeah. But uh no, there was yeah, it was more more when I was younger. But um yeah. It's now a good look, time. Damn, we could talk all night, but there was just a couple of other things. Go for it. Um, I'm just going to eat this cold salmon a bit more. Go for it. Go for it. Go for it. Um, But Ocon next year, Esteban Ocon coming in. Do you think a French driver in a French team is going to change the Crazy, crazy political. I got to get out. (laughs) (laughs) How's your French? Are you learning French? Um, Am I learning? Well, I actually started the year doing all right. I picked up a few words and I was like, this is cool. I can get used to this. But have you actually but had lessons or is it just I picking? No, no. Nah, nah. I, I don't want to say I've been slack. Like, sh- sure, I could have had a teacher and yes, there is enough hours in a day most of the time. But um, I guess I, I quickly realized my priority was getting getting the driving sorted and getting, getting the team up to where I, I feel they could be. So I was, yeah, any kind of spare time I thought was better spent engineering than learning languages vocab. yeah, yeah. <laughs> okay. but uh, i'm excited for ocon to, t- to touch on that actually i'm i'm excited to i think excited to have a new teammate i think it's always a chance to learn you know no driver's perfect and no driver is ever quicker than their teammate on every corner of every track of every lap of the year so inevitably there's always one thing at least one thing to learn so it's a chance for me to grow and get better as a driver it's a chance for me to compete you know against another young new prospect and all that so it's cool and I guess he's coming with a bit of Mercedes knowledge as well, which is hopefully good for the team. Um, absolutely. Absolutely. I think, yeah, there's, and there's, so there's the Mercedes, you know, part of it. And there's also just, I think him sitting a year out 
in F1, you know, his, his motivation and hunger is going to be massive. So if we, I guess, push our competition in, in the right way, then I think it's only going to drive the team forward. So I'm happy with that. I'm not sure how compatible you two are going to be because I've been watching <laughs> you eat this salmon and it's taken quite a long time for a bit I, of salmon. I just, do, you, do you know what Esteban has for breakfast every day? Oh boy. A six egg omelette for breakfast. And then he, I think he said to me, it was on this podcast, Beyond the Grid, and then he has like half a chicken for lunch. You would never know. <laughs> he wouldn't know. He has, <laughs> he has, next time viewers or listeners, if you, I mean, I'm sure you know what Esteban Ocon looks like for the most part, but take a look at his waist. Waist down, he has the skinniest torso I, I don't know and how does he where does his food go he's got a he's very, like the <laughs> leanest human being i've ever seen yeah it's he's, crazy yeah six egg omelet for breakfast. what an athlete yeah that's good so, so all right you can have some fun with him with, when it <laughs> at least comes to breakfast now uh dan what else um yeah look mma mixed martial arts ufc mm. big fan mm-hmm sorry is Conor McGregor in or out at the minute? Is he retired or has he come back? Or I can't remember. Um, so waiting for him to come back. I think he will fight again. Um, but yeah, so anyone who doesn't... I mean, it's, the long and short of it is it's cage fighting, but it's it's not cage fighting as far as like, ah, oh, it's just not these barbaric humans getting in a cage. It's, it's, it's mixed martial arts. So there is an art behind it all and... I'm just fascinated by it. Again, going back to competition, it's the most pure level of competition in the world. Like it's, it doesn't get much more pure than that. You know, you, you're literally in a cage and or a ring. We'll call it a ring. Octagon. The UFC calls it an octagon. And uh, I don't know. I, I, I was drawn to it. I, I've always loved combat sports. I, I loved boxing growing up, and I, I did a little bit of boxing for training. And one of my best mates was was fighting. So I always loved that. Um, but yeah, mixed martial arts really hit me. I think it was 2011 and I was just fascinated by it and drawn to it and, and loved it. And I'm like a full nerd, like full, full nerd with it. I'm listening to interviews, press conferences, podcasts, like every day. As soon as you leave, I'm going to finish my food and listen to uh, a UFC the, podcast. Yeah, absolutely. Would you ever <laughs> fight yourself? So in my head, <laughs> yes, I would, I would love to, but no, like the reality is I, I don't want to puff my chest out. I don't have it in my DNA. Like I'm not. What do you need? I'm not that guy, I guess. A brutality. But, it's, it's brutal. Yeah, you, need, not- you certainly need a, a lack of fear for your face and how it might look. But yeah, no, it's, I don't know. Like I, I've met a few fighters as well and, and they're very nice Guys, like you, you wouldn't think that that's their profession, you know. So I, I don't know if you need a level of that in you or what, but yeah, it's it's. Cra- I guess you're born with it or you're not, and and they they have it, and oh, it's it's you, cool. Have you been to I, a game? I, would, I would love to though. Sorry, to, I yeah. would love to fight to feel that rush. Like, yes, we get a rush racing cars, but I think walking into a ring, for example, would just be knowing that you're literally going up against someone else and that's it there's no one that can help you it's like very there's a chance like you could get yeah it's, it's very pure for you know yeah may the best man win kind of yeah. thing isn't it and i like that no excuses unfortunately my sport's a, not like that <laughs> but have you been to watch a, a fight yeah. live yeah where'd you go Where it was you? it was the greatest till this day it was the greatest sporting event i've ever been to it was in vegas um 2015 i saw it was mcgregor 
McGregor Mendes and uh, Mensa, they were the two biggest guys at the time, right? That was the main event for that weight division. So that was 145 pounds, which is we use pounds in England or kilos. No, right. Metric, yeah. Uh, I don't know what that is in. I don't. Well, I, I know kilos, but yeah. Anyway, and there was yeah. So that was a big one, and uh, but the whole event was amazing, cool, and the atmosphere was wild. And I just, I guess it's one of those things you love it or you don't. And I think unfortunately the people that see it for like oh they're like oh there's blood in this they're like oh I can't watch it, but it's it's not like there's so much more to it than just what you see on the surface. It's it's quite beautiful. <laughs> You, you're a guy who's got so much going on outside of racing cars. And Good looks, scene. you mean? Well, all of that, Dan, I guess. Obviously. But uh, <laughs> another guy like you is Lewis Hamilton, in that he's got an awful lot going on outside of racing cars. Um, do you feel you have a similar attitude to your sport? I think I mean, Lewis comes in for a bit of flack from some people for the way he lives his life. And where, where are you on the whole Lewis Hamilton thing? I think, I mean, there, there is some, um, I think it, every, you got to find what works for you, you know, and look, just touching on that, if Lewis was doing his extracurriculars and, and racing poorly, then I guess he deserves the flack. But if he's still winning titles, then I guess he can say, well, I'll do what I want, you know, as, as long as I'm winning, then that's what I'm getting paid to do. So I'll keep doing it. And I think like for me, I, I really went through a transition it was uh, middle of 2013. I was very, I grew up very like hard on myself and very disciplined and with training and, and diet and all of it. And uh, I think that served me very well through my teenage years and it kept me out of trouble. And, you know, when everyone was partying and this and that and, you know, living away, away from family, it's like, oh, well, let's, let's go and do what we want now. I was like, no, nah, I, I got bigger fish to fry. Um, but then it got to a point as well where I was, I think, too hard on myself and I was too, I guess, too consumed by by the racing and by the sports. So then the problem with that is when it doesn't go your way and when you do have a bad weekend, you're really scratching your head because you're like, what else can I do? You know, and, and that's that's it's kind of harder to accept when it's like that. And uh, yeah, it was middle of 2013. I felt like it was getting a bit too much, like I was being my results weren't there and I wasn't really enjoying it as much. And I was like, I just need to get away. And I remember I went to New York. I'd never been to New York. I went to New York for a few days and just didn't train for a few days, had a couple of drinks and just, just lived like a normal, whatever I was, 22 year old kid or something. And uh, yeah, I just came back feeling like refreshed and, and I didn't feel guilty for, you know, enjoying myself for a few days. And, and then I, I slowly just found a balance with what works for me and, and I'm not saying I'm, that's not, the example is find what works. And for me, the having other interests, I think having an escape from the racing is, is good for me because as much as I love it, I'm not really a racing nerd. Like I, I, I always had other interests in life, you know, and truth be told, you know, my second last year at school, you know, when you start doing work experience, I was scratching my head. I'm like, what am I going to do with my life? Like I had racing, but I was far from professional. And I was like, what am I going to do? And, you know, I was playing other sports and doing things, but yeah. Um, so what did you do for your work experience? Uh, Just been- uh, I worked, what did I do? I was, oh, I was at, uh, I worked at a, like a racing school for a bit, like being like a mechanic and stuff. So Okay, so it was racing. You did. Well, that was, but I also worked at a cafe uh, or like a restaurant. I worked a bit with dad, so doing like earth moving, 
so uh, compacting and, and, you know, working, like getting my hands dirty, I guess. And I was like, oh, I could, you know, I could just go in the family business, but that seemed a bit to me like that was an easy way out. And I kind of, that never really sat well with me. It was like, ah, oh. and I don't, I didn't really love it. Like my dad loves his job. And, and if, if I did that, wouldn't have really been my passion. Um, I enjoy it, but I, I didn't love it like he did. So yeah, so, having an escape is, I don't know, it's, it's cool. Cause like I go to bed at night and I'm not, I'm not running 70 laps in my head of, of Abu Dhabi circuit, you know, and, and cause that's going to keep you up. You know, I'm, I'm listening to a UFC podcast or whatever. And that helps me. It might not work for everyone, but it works for me. And uh, you can have fun as well. Like I also got that, sorry. I'm talking a lot, but I, I that's the idea. It's, it's You're doing well. I know, I know. <laughs> so, and I also got to a point and it was in that 2013 and people would ask me, oh, you've been to Japan. You've been to all these places. Like, how is it? I'm like, I wouldn't know. I, I lock myself in my hotel room so I can get an early night's sleep and that's it. If you want to know about Suzuka, I'm your man. But yeah. Right, yeah. yeah. <laughs> the hotel's great. Yeah, yeah. And, that, and that was another realization. I was like, what if, what if I don't have a drive next year? You know, like what if my career ended now? I don't have anything else to show for it. I, I, I've traveled the world, but I haven't really traveled the world. So I kind of made a point as well to get myself out there and to experience more because it's it's a privilege that we can travel with this work. And I didn't feel I was doing it justice. And that that alone really made F1 more enjoyable for me. What's the most memorable thing you've done at a race that doesn't involve racing that we can talk about on the podcast? Oh, um, so like in Japan, have I you mean, climbed Mount Fuji? Have you in, in, we, uh, 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 let me think. I mean, well, one, one more recent one was like, we saw the, is it the luchadore, like the Mexican wrestling? We saw that. That was, that was I mean, kind that was, of a work thing though, wasn't it? No, that was like a, maybe I went there once for work, but no, that was like leisure. I was with friends. Okay. Yeah. I think it was last year. And, uh, and we went to do that, which was fun. And it was, I think it was the night before qualifying, but it was whatever. It was cool. We enjoyed it. Um, oh, geez. There's a lot. Uh, you got Montreal, me on the spot. Maybe, oh, yeah, no. Montreal, you can do stuff, isn't it? But Cirque du Soleil. Yeah. Yeah, that was cool. Yeah. And then got to like meet all the performers afterwards and hear their, hear their training regime and all that. Like that was also Is that educational. Yeah, I was going to say yeah. for you. Yeah, that was cool. Yeah, I don't know. I think like, I guess the idea of yeah being tucked in at 9pm at night, I think it's good when you're young and it gives you the discipline. But, you know, now it's it's not necessary to, to kind um, of live by that every night. You mentioned um, diet and how you religiously kept by a particular diet when you were climbing up through the junior formulas. Um, I remember reading that you have, what, what you've got some special diet even now, right? What do you do? There's something you do. Really? Or don't eat, or you don't eat until lunchtime or something. Is there something, oh, oh, okay. isn't there something, don't you do something? <laughs> when you're a knock-on, I'm really not going to get on, actually, no, no, if you're no. not a breakfast guy. <laughs> no, I, I love breakfast, but uh, no, I think Is, it's Am well, I right? Am I right? Yeah, we did, like, so we, we've done some fasting and things like this. Um, Five, two, or what's your thing? Um, so I actually did a, I did a 40-hour fast, uh, okay. I think it was last week, maybe. So just, you can only have water for 40 hours. That was quite cool. Well, cool. Why, why do you, why, why well, do you, do you, you want to know the truth? <laughs> yes. I still don't really know. But no, we've, we've heard so like, I mean, Michael, um, he's done some research on it and you hear like through some podcasts and that as well, fasting can be quite cool to re reboot your blood cells with, and all that. Of working with an old mate. 
in that could he just be trying to stitch you up? Maybe, maybe. <laughs> yeah, yeah. But it's not in his, it's not in his interest <laughs> no, that's either. that's true. But, um, but it, you know, that that's as well, like, because I have, so through it all, very when I was young, I was very disciplined. Then I obviously started to just be a bit more uh, relaxed with it all as far as maybe diet went. But then I probably got to a point where I was too relaxed and actually like, so this fasting, for example, is it's a, it's an actual, it's a way or a reason to be a bit disciplined again. Cause you can go 16 hours, 24 hours without food. Like you, you're fine. You've got enough stores in you. So it's just uh, applying a bit of discipline in your life again, even for that alone, it's quite good. How did you feel after 40 hours? I was like, I expected to get, you hear like people might get a bit dizzy or lightheaded. I was okay. I, I did a bit of training as well in, in the 40 hours. Um, but by, yeah, by then I was like, all right, I'm going to, I'm going to eat, but uh, you don't eat crazy. Like you, you don't go, you don't make up for four or five meals that you've missed, but uh, I was okay. But yeah, you feel like a bit low on energy and whatever, but uh, that was fun. It was that's whatever. So that's a discipline <laughs> thing as much as anything yeah. else. Because I guess, because as the, as the weights have gone up this year, you're not, is your fighting weight a little bit higher than it was last year? For uh, example? Like a kilo. It's not much. Oh, okay. So somehow the cars always seem to be heavy and it never really works out the way it seems. But um, yeah, I do have to watch my weight for sure. And actually getting used to doing a bit of fasting, that is sometimes a good way to keep the weight off if you need to do it quickly. But yeah, I'm, I'm like, what, 70 kilos, maybe 71. But uh, yeah, if I'm, more, like, if I'm more than 71, then... It's it's a detriment time for a forty-hour fast. Yeah, there you go. So it's, it's <laughs> what about uh, the racing series, Dan? Are you uh, you know fast forward ten years? Are we going to see you in NASCAR? Are we going to see you in Aussie supercars? Are we uh, or are we going to see you doing something completely different? I think completely different is probably the answer. If it's not the pinnacle, you're not interested, kind of thing. I think. I don't know if it's, I'm, I'm not interested. Like, I would love to do Bathurst, you know, and I would love to do Daytona 500 and, and, and that, that would be awesome. Um, but I think it's more, if I go all in with the F1 stuff and if I put everything I can into, you know, be world champion and, and get what I, what I'm after, I think I'll be quite exhausted afterwards and quite done with it. So yeah, I'll, I'll want to break from, I think the racing and, and therefore I think I'll do something different. Um, I think as well, like you, yeah, you've done it, you know, I've already done it for a big part of my life and I guess at some point I'll probably get a little bit sick of it and yeah, just want something fresh. But, um, and again, cause I've got other interests in, in whether it's music or whatever, whatever else I'm interested in, if I could pursue a completely different role in, in a different career, that would be cool. Don't, I'm not saying I'm going to be a musician, by the way. I'm not saying that. Well, we've got to start with myself. <laughs> yeah, no, no. So I'm not kidding myself. But like, I think to to find love in another avenue of life, I think would be really cool. Like to have the same passion. If I could find even close to the same passion in something else that I got for racing, then I think that's like winning. You're doing pretty well. Can you think what that could be? Um, I don't know like what it could be. I think it could be something surrounded by music because it's hard. I guess it's hard to explain, but music does give me something which I still can't really explain. And I don't know why, like my dad loves music actually. And he played instruments growing up. So maybe I get something from him again, but it just does something to me, which I don't know. It just makes me a very, very happy human. So 
I'll just be a groupie for all I care. But if, if I could listen to music for every day for the rest of my life, I know I'd be happy. So yeah, I guess something with music would, would give me quite a lot of fulfillment. Cool. Well, look, Dan, winter's coming up. Mm. Final thoughts. Um, oh, well, you, you don't want to talk anymore? Wait. <laughs> <laughs> we could go all night. I'm loving it. But what, what does the winter hold for you? Are you going back to Perth? Yes. Staying in Europe? You always complain I, about the weather in England, in, yeah. in, in, in Europe in the winter, don't you? No, it's all right. It's all right. I, I, like, I love Europe in the summer, you know, and, and that's, that's when I, I, I definitely enjoy Monaco the most is in the summer. But, uh, I mean, I, I love summer in general. So, yeah, Christmas is summer for me in Australia. So that's where, that's where I tend to be. Um, so after the race, so everyone will think, oh, last race of the year. Yeah, Sunday night, you're out partying and your season's done. No, you still got like, I got about two weeks more of, of work to do in Europe after the race. Um, and when all, I say work, that's like, yeah, Renault, a bit of next year stuff, but also just sponsorship days through Renault, marketing days. Um, yeah, I guess stuff like that. And then I'll get home and I probably won't even tell my friends when I get home. You know, like I used to when I you know, the first few years I was like, I'll tell them, I'm like, I'm going to land at 5.30 PM, be at the airport. Let's go out. Like, let's, let's start our summer. But now I think just because of the schedule, it's so busy and I, I'm normally pretty tired by the end of the season. So I, I want to just switch off for a few days and yeah, just go and got a farm. So just go lay, lay with my cows and sheep on the farm and Oh, you and Bernie. Bernie's got a farm. What, what is it about? With the- <laughs> I'll tell you what it is. It's, you it's got living, coffee as well. It's living a, a what? Do I have a? No, I no. don't. I like coffee though. Um, it's living such a chaotic, busy lifestyle, always surrounded by stimulus and people. That a farm is so awesome because it's it's really an escape. And I've always loved it. Like being Australian, we have a, we're exposed to a lot of land, and I love the outback and all that. So. Um, yeah, having a farm, it's just like definitely some peace and quiet, which just which take yourself away yourself yeah. on your own. Or yeah, I'm, I'll, I'll happily go there alone. I mean, I think naturally my family will want to come and spend a few days <laughs> with me there, but uh, but yeah, as far as like you know, calling on my friends to come and I'll, I'll hold off for a few days for sure and just get get a bit of me time. Um, and yeah, hang out with my nephew and niece and uh, teach him <laughs> how to ride a dirt bike. That's that's the plan. I I, I bought him some some motorbike gear, so I got a little. Wee 50 out there so i want to teach him how to ride he's very lucky to have an uncle like you yeah uh, i'm a cool cat <laughs> dan thank you so much for your time no it's worries been, it's been great to speak um and and good luck let's hope the Renault thing in 2020 that's what it's meant to do what what is it meant to do in 2020 uh what get me you... drink out of my shoe again that's that's really that's really what i want from it so yeah podium would be well i say a podium more than one is welcome but to get back on the podium I think that would be a tick in the box for us. Good luck with that. Merci beaucoup. Merci. (laughs) (laughs) Cheers. There you have it. The biggest character in Formula One telling big stories about racing and much, much more. One of the many things I love about chatting to Daniel is the flow of the conversation. One minute you can be mucking around, joking about something, and the next he'll hit you right between the eyes with a serious point. And what really came across during this podcast was his passion for racing, something he inherited from his father Joe. Don't be misled by the smile or the LA lifestyle or the love of UFC. Daniel's as passionate about Formula One as anyone else on the grid. 
Thanks for your time, Dan. Have a great winter and I look forward to seeing you again in Barcelona for pre-season testing. Well, that's it for another episode and we're almost done for the year, but we'll be back one last time in 2019 next week when I'll be picking out my most memorable moments of the year. Stories from Kimi Raikkonen to Murray Walker, Damon Hill, Mika Hakkinen, Mario Andretti and all of the other stars I've had the pleasure of chatting to over the last nine months. And why not tell me your favourite moments via Twitter? You know the hashtag by now, hashtag F1 Beyond the Grid. And while I'm working through that, why not subscribe to the podcast if you haven't already? We're on all of your favourite apps as well as Apple and Spotify. And many thanks for your feedback about last week's episode with Bernie Eccleston. We had a lot of comments about this show, so Bernie's clearly someone who still provokes opinion. Chris Turner got in touch via Twitter to say this. You went from possibly the easiest interview ever in Rubens Barrichello to extracting every nugget from Bernie with the ease of a root canal. A clinic in sticking with the tough interview and coming out with gold. Well, whether or not it was gold is up for discussion, Chris, but your reference to a root canal definitely made me smile, and you're probably not wrong. As ever, please keep your feedback coming because we love it and we share it. And remember to use that hashtag, F1 Beyond the Grid, and you can tweet me at Tom Clarkson F1. Beyond the Grid is produced by F1 in association with Audio Boom. Until next time, keep it flat out.